Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of Top 1000 Funds and this is the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome my guest Ben Meng. Ben is Chief Investment Officer of CalPERS, the largest pension fund in the United States. He oversees an investment office of nearly 400 employees and manages investment portfolios of roughly $400 billion. Welcome, Ben. How are you doing? How are things in Sacramento? Hey, good morning, Amanda. Very nice to hear from you. Uh, given the circum- uh, circumstance, I think we're doing fine in Sacramento. And I trust uh, you and your loved ones and also your audience and listeners uh, uh, remain uh, safe and healthy during this public uh, health crisis. Thank you, Ben, and, and same to you. Ben, you joined CalPERS the first time in 2008 and had around eight years at the fund before leaving to work in China at the State Administration of Foreign Exchange as Deputy CIO. You rejoined CalPERS as CIO last year. Tell us what, what brought you back. Why are you here? Oh, thanks, Amanda. That's a very good question. Uh, actually, the uh, answer to me was very uh, simple. So among all the options, you know, uh, I could have had, I came back to CalPERS, uh, you know, for the two uh, P's, I call one, the purpose of the fund, which is to uh, serve those who serve California. And we serve the members, about 2 million members. And if you think about it, you know, uh, uh, how many people in your entire career uh, career would have the opportunity, to me as an owner, you know, uh, have the owner and the opportunity to serve 2 million people and uh, to secure their uh, uh, health and the retirement benefits. That would be the highlight for, uh, you know, for any investment uh, professionals. So that's for the purpose and also for the people. You know, uh, I, as you mentioned, that I worked at CalPERS before, you know, for uh, seven to eight years uh, before I left for, you know, uh, safe uh, in China for three years. Uh, to be closer to my uh, my side of family and also to broaden my uh, investment uh, horizons, uh, but the, I uh, even when I was uh, when I was away, I was deeply connected with Calpers people. So the uh, the from the board, the executive office, the investment office, um, many of the people uh, knew me, and I uh, uh, stayed in touch with many of them. So for me, uh, knowing that I I'm coming back to almost like returning home, the same work family, uh, working with my uh, uh, esteemed colleagues again, and to serve such an honorable uh, honorable purpose, you know, it's very uh, difficult to say no to. And the other reason is, uh, 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 the other P is a, is a person, which is our CEO, Marcy Frost. As you know that, you know, she's not the kind of person, uh, you know, you can easily say no to. You know, she really cares about our system uh, care uh, about again the people and the people side. So you know to work with her is another plus. So that's the kind of three reasons: two big P and one small P. The purpose and the people, and then one particular person is Marcy Frost. Fantastic. So you've been back at Calpers for eighteen months, and you and you mentioned that purpose of you know looking after the retirement incomes of two million people. That's a huge responsibility as well as a a gift. What what challenges? have you faced in the time the last 18 months since you've been back and what do you see as the key challenges going forward both for the fund but also for you personally yeah so let's start with the fund uh, the fund the challenge has been and will continue to be actually the challenge getting tougher and tougher is really how to increase our chance of uh, hitting the seven percent 
assume the rate of return or the target rate of return. And not just only 7%, it's 7% of $400 billion assets. And also, we are, you know, our funded status is only around 70%. So when you're underfunded, which limits your options, you know, what you can do in the investment portfolio. And on top of that, we also need to pay out uh, almost $25 billion in benefit every year. So it means we have to maintain not only not only a diversified a diversified portfolio, also somewhat liquid portfolio, so that we can continue to pay the members' benefits, uh, and also to achieve seven percent return in the long run on four hundred dollars, four hundred billion dollars. That's really a big challenge. Uh, so that is uh, for the fund. Uh, for myself personally, the challenge is really about I guess time management. You know, it just. Uh, um, so much going on, particularly given that we're still in the midst of a, a, a pandemic, and things are continue, uh, things continue to evolve, unfold in front of us. And uh, you know, naturally, there's so many uh, different pieces of information coming in every day from all different angles. Not only you have to mind the health uh, and the safety of the portfolio. More importantly, we have to mind the health and safety of our employees. Uh, you know, as you know, the human capital is such a critical uh, in the component of our success. And in the asset management industry, uh, you know, our, our human capital is probably the most important form of capital. So not just their physical health, the mental health, as we continue the lockdown, working remotely for more than three months now. So that's another you know, kind of uh, demand on time uh, uh, as you mentioned at the opening, we manage almost an uh, office of almost 400 people and a portfolio of almost $400 billion. So it's really the uh, uh, prioritization every day, and uh, we all have, uh, you know, 24 7. So, how to prioritize my time and uh, constantly adjust myself and the priorities uh, given the market uh, uh, conditions. So that I find the challenge. But good news is that really I have a very, very strong team. Uh, my investment team, from uh, the senior team all the way down to the, you know, uh, 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 investment officers, the file, or what I call for lack of better word, the file and rank employees. Each one of them really stepped up big time during this crisis, working remotely. But uh, as I said, when we working remotely for more than three months now, and everything goes so smoothly. And that's a huge testimony to uh, to our team, to each one of them. So we all uh, face this challenge together. But once we team up together as one team, we can pull ourselves out of this, in, and then we'll become a much better team, much stronger portfolio, and uh, we have a you know, brighter future ahead of us. So I'm, I, I'm a strong believer of our teamwork, and I'm just so grateful for all the wonderful work uh, they, they they have done that they continue to do every day. So uh, that's kind of personal challenge on my side, but I'm so blessed to have such a wonderful team. And I continue to enjoy the support from our executive office, our CEO and her team, and our board, uh, broadly speaking, and all the stakeholders. So you really see and sense the partnership at all different levels. And I truly believe in the teamwork to manage through this uh, kind of uh, heightened volatility uh, a public health crisis, you know, financial crisis all together to manage the size and complexity of our portfolio. So that's 
kind of the challenge both on the personal front and the professional front. When you put it like that, it's it's no small challenge, is it? Of four hundred billion dollars and and seven percent on four hundred billion dollars and and managing the well-being and efficiency of a team of 400 people. So um, congratulations so far and um, wish, you, wish you luck. Um, you, you, mentioned this, you mentioned this 7% return target and it seems like a tall order in a time of low or negative interest rates and extreme volatility in both public and private markets. Do you think it's even possible to achieve 7%? Uh, yes, it's possible. And what we are doing and we, what we have been doing and continue to do is increase our chance, uh, increase the probability of uh, uh, being successful. And you're absolutely right. 7% return is a really a tall order in today's, we call the triple low, the low uh, inflation, low interest rates or negative you know, real rates in many parts of the world, many parts of the curve already, and also the low economic growth. So on top of that, as you mentioned, they overlay the extreme market volatility coming from a public health crisis. Not really, uh, it didn't start out as a financial crisis, not an economic crisis. It was a public health crisis, and we don't have a lot of historical references uh, you know, to that uh, either. So this is all the challenges, but the reason we say you know, it's still uh, 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 possible, uh, but it's a tall order to think of this. Uh, this way, the risk-free rate, let's call it 70 bips, the 10-year note, right? Game and take is around 70 bips, 10 years note in the uh, in the U.S. And we're trying to achieve 700 bips, you know, on $400 billion. So we need to find a way to close the gap between 70 bips and 700 bips on $400 billion. And that's why it's such a tall order in the low inflation, low interest rate, and low economic growth. It is possible uh, we can get into it later, as some of you probably have seen my op-ed on Wall Street Journal and a few interviews you know, I have given you know, to the top 1,000 funds and other uh, uh, financial uh, media outlets where we outlined uh, our thinking about you know, toward a 7% so let's talk a little bit about one of those points, one of those ways you're, you're trying to achieve it, and that's using leverage. And there's been a lot of discussion recently about Calper's plan to use leverage and commentary around taking on a lot of risk in a time of great uncertainty. Can you lay out your thinking around this, particularly with regards to your private equity allocation, where the target is 8%, but you see it as a, a, a very favourable asset class and, and want to try and get more out of it? Can you talk us through that? Yes, absolutely. I'd be happy to. And uh, so you're right. Leverage uh, is part of the uh, you know our toward seven percent solution. So actually, there are two major components in our proposed seven uh, percent uh, solution. One, what what we call more assets, basically using leverage, and the other one is a better asset. We can get into that later. For more assets using leverage, we're proposing uh, in up to you know, a 20% leverage. So it's a very modest level of leverage. We're thinking only up to 20%. And we're not planning to use the leverage, you know, up to 20% immediately. So some of the media reporting is not 100% accurate, uh, saying that we are uh, leveraging up the fund $80 billion right away and put all the money into uh, private equity. So that's definitely not the case. So what we plan to use leverage, we, use, we plan to use a moderate amount of leverage up to 20%, and we only do so uh, gradually, prudently, and 
opportunistically means that only the market opportunities warrant use such amount of uh, uh, leverage. And if you think of a leverage, it's just one way, one of the ways to increase uh, in the risk in the portfolio. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, when the risk-free rate in the U.S. is 70 pips, and we're trying to uh, achieve 700 pips on $400 billion, when you're underfunded and also on the top of that, you need $25 billion payout of liquidity every year. That's a very tall order, as you said. Uh, so it means that to close the gap between the 70 bips uh, of a risk-free rate and the 700 bips of the target rate of return, we have to expose the portfolio to risks. So we are, there's nowhere to hide from risks. But not all the risks are created equal for CalPERS, depending on our own unique characteristics, our risk appetite, the market opportunity at that time. So not all the risks are created equal. And among all the risks, we believe that for today, to use a moderate amount of leverage is a, actually is a better risk for CalPERS, which I can elaborate further. But if you think of, you know, uh, uh, technically speaking, if you, if you think of the efficient frontier, you know, once, uh, uh, you know, you identify, uh, you know, investable asset class to you and uh, you formulate the expected return and risk around these asset classes, then you can create an efficient frontier. And then depending on your risk tolerance, you know, then you pick the optimal portfolio on the efficient frontier. However, from that point on, you say that actually I'm willing to take on more risk to generate more return because, you know, again, in the triple low market environment, we need to expose our portfolio to risks, but we won't do so in a very intelligent way, in a smart way. So what are the risk factors for us? Go back to efficient frontier. One of the ways is that instead of, uh, you know, uh, continuing to climb up in the risk curve on the efficient frontier, as you know, the further out you go, normally speaking, the slope of the efficient frontier gets flatter and flatter which means that for any additional unit of risk you take on, the additional gain on the expected return is, is getting smaller and smaller. So in, instead of uh, climbing, continue to climb up the efficient frontier, one of the better ways actually, you leverage up the optimal portfolio. So you create 80, almost a tangent line. And the tangent line, the slope of that is steeper you know, than the efficient frontier itself. Uh, only if you could leverage up the entire portfolio. Given our size and the complexity of our portfolio, we are not proposing to leverage up the so-called optimal portfolio and then climb up the tangent line, have a steeper slope. So that's not what, what we are proposing. But a similar idea, though, so if you use leverage uh, intelligently and prudently, actually it can become your friend in terms of becoming a better source of risk for CalPERS to take. And why is a better source of risk for CalPERS to take today? For a number of reasons. External reasons, as you know, that um, the interest rate is really low, which means the borrowing cost is very low. And also because of the fact commitment to the functionality you know, of uh, the financial market. We believe that you know, the uh, uh, liquidity uh, will continue to be available or leverage. You can say that liquidity and leverage will continue to be available uh, to large institutional investors like CalPERS. That's where we have the, uh, you know, the uh, skill and brand to work out all the different pathways uh, to uh, 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 borrow money to, uh, so that we can generate the leverage. And uh, uh, the cost is much lower too because of lower interest rate. So these are the external factors. We believe 
the cost and the availability of leverage will become, uh, it, it already become stable and available uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. The internal reasons is that, you know, since global financial crisis, you know, 12, uh, 11, 12 years ago, we really learned a lot lessons around the use of leverage. We really buttressed, you know, uh, the uh, leverage framework in terms of allocation, uh, allocating leverage, uh, monitoring leverage, and the, uh, manage, the management of leverage. So basically what we did is really created a centralized governance around the allocation and the management of leverage. In the past, the use of leverage used to be siloed by each asset class, sometimes by different strategy, and sometimes even at deal by deal level. But what we lacked was a, a consolidated, a centralized approach, knowing where the risks are and the leverage are, and then we can manage them holistically. So we spent the last 10 years or so, and particularly, particularly in 2019, since I returned, we really accelerated that work, uh, centralized uh, uh, the management of leverage, created a transparency, the risk management framework and procedures and governance, who is accountable for what, uh, what investment committee, you know, make what decision. So clearly defined, and that framework, you know, we put that uh, to test during the global, uh, you know, during the, pan uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, induced market crisis. And we're, uh, you know, very encouraged, encouraged to see that the framework, the new, uh, newly established centralized governance framework and the risk management framework, particularly around leverage, is working. Uh, so that's the internal reasons, and we, that's why you know we think now is a, a leverage, a moderate amount of leverage, a prudent use of moderate amount of leverage, represent a better form of risk for calpers uh, to take on. So your other question really regarding our PE allocation. Now the target is eight percent. And uh, our thinking around this, so our strategic target, the long-term target is 8%, but we have been struggling in getting close to that target. We have been hovering around 7% for uh, quite some time. Uh, as you know, that the private equity as an asset class is not liquid. It means that you cannot go in quickly, you, you cannot get out quickly. It's not like the public equity market if you know, currently 50% Five zero percent of our portfolio allocated to public equity, and if I'm increased from fifty percent to fifty one percent, I can get it done probably within days, maybe weeks, depending on market condition. But in private equity, it's very difficult, as you know. Uh, so we take a very long view. The good news is that good news is that we are long term investor. We take a very long view with private asset classes, and uh, uh, again, particularly since I returned last year. We have been uh, exploring a number of different ways to increase our exposure to private equity. But at the same time, the principle is that we do not compromise on our underwriting standards. In private equity, we use external managers almost exclusively because we don't have the internal uh, expertise or capabilities yet. Uh, so, but also you know that the uh, performance dispersion among, among private equity managers are large. So you have to have access to the top managers. And first, you have to uh, be able to identify the top managers and then have access to the top managers. So this is where it plays to our strengths, why, you know, uh, uh, 
private asset classes really plays to our structured advantages. For one, because of our size and brand, we do have access to most of the top managers. And for two, you know, we were, we were one of the early adopters of private equity in our portfolio. I want to say almost two decades now. So internally, we have built a very strong team with very deep institution knowledge about private equity as an asset class. And as an LP, how we should manage this asset class. Uh, we have deep understanding of the asset class, a knowledge of, uh, of the top managers. And uh, so this allows us to uh, explore all the possible ways to increase our exposure without compromising on our underwriting standards. Since we have been doing so far, for example, co-investment, we are ramping up our commitment and uh, uh, you know, investment in co-investment very significantly in the past six months or so. And again, you know, we are seeing the benefit of that during the COVID-19 crisis. We're also exploring you know, a, a larger commitment to high commission managers. Uh, in the past, you know, we, uh, we had some limitation on the number of managers we wanted to work with, and which was a good policy at that time. But now, uh, you know, we want to relax the number of managers in the portfolio. Also, we would like to relax a little bit in terms of the size, you know, uh, to each of the uh, high commission managers or their flagship funds. So increase the size to commingle funds to the high commission managers, increase, uh, you know, investment in co-investment. We're also doing more and more in separate manager accounts with a large platform, again, high commission managers with a large platform. We'd like to uh, explore more and more of the separate manager accounts basically across uh, multiple uh, products uh, so that we can negotiate better economic terms for calipers, at the same time we gain the scale uh, uh, exposure to high commission uh, managers across their large platform. And other things we also continue to explore uh, innov innovative ideas, uh, such as different business model. For the lack of a better word, we continue to explore the what we call the captive GP concept. If we can find capable GP teams that they're willing to work for or work with just one LP, so that we, you know, uh, we can be better aligned, as well as we can get the deal or uh, allocation that uh, what we want. So these are all the different ways we are exploring, you know, to increase our exposure to private private equity without compromising on our underwriting standards. Thanks, Ben. That's that's really clear. I just want to pivot now to to um, something else that you, that there's been a huge project for you since. You came back, and I think you've told me in the past that too much liquidity is costly, but too little can be deadly. And last year, you implemented a liquidity management framework, and it turns out that timing of that was pretty good with the market volatility in March. You could actually deploy capital opportunistically and, and also rebalance the portfolio. Can you talk us through that framework and the importance of having a total portfolio liquidity framework and also some of the investments you made at that time? Yeah, uh, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, as you know, actually, liquidity management framework, the balance sheet liquidity management framework and uh, the use of a leverage or the management around uh, leverage, the governance, they are just, you know, a two sides of the same coin. They're very, very interrelated. Uh, as you know, one of the risks using leverage. So uh, if you look at the uh, uh, 
the market, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, market of risky assets, in the long run, they go up. There, there are more days that the market goes up than it goes down. So which means that if you ignore the financing cost, you know, the cost of leverage for a moment for now, which means that if you can apply leverage consistently, in the long run, there should be to a benefit because in the long run, the market tends to go up more than it goes down. But the risk that using leverage, it does exacerbate the downturn. And we know that it just inevitable, periodically will experience the market downturn. And by having the leverage on, it does exacerbate uh, the, the, the downturn. So the pain is real. So for as a long-term investor, so what are the ways that we can ensure that, you know, uh, when we apply a, modi a modest amount of leverage in a downturn, it doesn't hurt us. So in a downturn, what really hurt us is if you turn the market-to-market -market volatility or the market-to-market -market loss into permanent capital impairment. So there are two ways that could happen. For one, you didn't have balance sheet liquidity anymore. Your market position for whatever the need for liquidity, such as paying members' benefits or meet the margin calls from the market, you had to sell you know, uh, 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 your position to generate liquidity. You couldn't hold on to the risky, uh, uh, you couldn't hold on to your portfolio position anymore. You couldn't hold on to your leverage uh, anymore because you know you needed balance sheet liquidity. So that's what we call the ability to be a long-term investor. You know, how do you sustain the market drop, the inevitable market drawdown? So the with the solid balance sheet liquidity management framework, which I'll get into in a bit, gave us the ability to be a long-term investor to withstand the inevitable market drawdown. And the other one is really the governance around uh, you know, the use of a leverage and also the, uh, the governance, the commitment, you know, to being a long-term investor, the buy-in of that from all the stakeholders, such as our board, our executive office, uh, uh, stakeholders in the investment office. So that's what I call the will to be a long-term investor. And once we have the ability and as well as the will together, you know, we can be much better positioned not only to survive the market downturn, in a way to uh, take advantage of the uh, market downturn when the opportunities uh, 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 present themselves. So that's why the liquidity management firm is so important. But let me go into a little bit details what I mean by too much liquidity costly and too little liquidity can be deadly. So now we highlighted, highlighted the importance of uh, balance sheet liquidity management or having enough balance sheet liquidity then one of the first reaction may be just why don't we just hold you know a lot of cash on the portfolio, but the challenge of is that is in a low yielding environment, too much liquidity is costly. Cash does not generate anything close to seven percent. Uh, but we also know too little liquidity could be deadly. So how do we strike the balance you know between the two? So what we did last year really, we really built a very comprehensive you know balance sheet liquidity management framework. It took us about a year, the full year, and many parts of the investment office, you know, uh, members from many parts of the investment office is a, uh, is a really a significant amount of a teamwork for one year to put it together. So first, we identify all the potential, potential uses of a balance sheet liquidity for overnight, seven days, 30 days, and 90 days. 
for a different time horizons. The potential uh, uses of balance sheet liquidity, such as you know, members' benefit payments, margin costs, uh, you know, capital costs from your commitment to, to commingled funds in private asset classes, uh, the need for balance sheet liquidity to rebalance your portfolio when market is very volatile, often creates the need to re to rebalance your portfolio or larger need, larger need to rebalance your portfolio, and also the potential use of liquidity is the dry powder. If you see great investment opportunities during extreme market dislocations, you would like to be able to deploy capital uh, into such you know extreme market dislocations. So these are, are all the potential uses of uh, uh, balance sheet liquidity. But we, we recognize that not all of them are equal in, term, in terms of uh, negotiability. For example, members' benefit payment and margin costs are not negotiable at all. Uh, 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 because if we cannot meet uh, these requirements, means that the CalPERS would default on its obligations. So that's uh, a liability that's not negotiable. And then on the flip side, the dry powder to deploy, that, that's a potential use of balance sheet liquidity is totally negotiable. If you don't have the balance sheet liquidity at that moment, what you lose is the opportunity that you couldn't invest. But it doesn't mean that you will go default, right? So they are different in terms of negotiability. And also they are different in terms of a knowability, the reason or forecastability. For example, members' benefit payment is a formulaic which and also is known months ahead, is with very little variation. So in a way, even though the the members' benefit payment, they are not negotiable, but they are very forecastable. So you can plan around it. But then I, on, on the same note, margin costs are not forecastable at all, unless you think you can forecast the direction of the market. So the margin costs are not forecastable and not negotiable. So you want to really tighten up your analytical framework around that kind of uh, potential use of uh, 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 liquidity. So this on the one side of the ledger is all to identify all the potential uses of uh, balance sheet liquidity at different time horizons and also under different stress scenarios. We use historical stress scenarios and we use some, a few hypothetical stress scenarios. Then on the other side of the ledger, what are all the potential sources for balance sheet liquidity? So, for example, we have cash. We have cash, uh, cash equivalent on the balance sheet. We also have you know, expected coupon dividend in the payout from our portfolio, uh, expected distribution from commingo funds, uh, from private uh, asset classes. And also, we also have some uh, uh, large part of our asset that, normally speaking, they're liquid. If we really need liquidity, we, we could turn this asset into cash. And then the last source, what we really focused on last year to build out what we call a, a borrowed liquidity, means a liquidity on demand. So once you have identified all the potential sources of a balance sheet liquidity, you know, and also we recognize that not all the sources of a balance sheet liquidity are create, created equal. They're different in terms of reliability. For example, cash on the book is very reliable. Right? They are also different in terms of uh, uh, timeliness, how quickly you can generate that source of liquidity. They are also different in terms of cost, and as well as the risks associated. 
you know, uh, we start a potential source of the, uh, financial liquidity. So it's a multiple dimension, it's an optimization process. But the basic idea is that you pair the most reliable sources of a balance sheet liquidity with the least negotiable uh, and also least forecastable potential uses of balance sheet liquidity. And then you put a, a comprehensive framework together, map, uh, match the potential supply or sources of a balance sheet liquidity with the potential use of a balance sheet liquidity. So, and the last one, as I said, that you know, uh, the liquidity on demand feature of our balance sheet liquidity management is the critical component. That's how a balance between the too much liquidity is costly, but too little is deadly. So that we don't carry too much liquidity on the balance sheet all the time, no matter we use it or not. We only generate liquidity when we need it, and we only start paying for the liquidity when they need it. So that's what we mean by a liquidity on demand. And that ties to, uh, in a way, ties to our use of leverage. When we need balance liquidity, borrow liquidity, uh, you know, we could use some leverage and start generating liquidity on demand. And then we can deploy that borrowed liquidity into a better opportunity, better risk return uh, 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 opportunities. So that's kind of the general principle underlying our uh, balance sheet liquidity management framework, and how we balance between too much liquidity is costly, too little liquidity is deadly, basically created the liquidity on demand feature. And last year alone, we created more than 10 additional pathways to borrow the liquidity, and with the additional borrowing capacity up to $20 billion. And we put this balance sheet liquidity management, management framework, as well as the uh, pathways to borrow liquidity with a moment notice to test uh, from uh, uh, March, April, and continuously. And uh, we are, again, we're very encouraged and heartened to see that our framework is working as expected. Ben, can you give us some actual examples of where you've deployed capital using uh, this framework and, and the opportunistic uh, elements of that, you know, where you where you have deployed capital in March and, and April, and also the inno innovative ways you're working with external managers to integrate this thinking of liquidity on demand into the way that you structure mandates and, and allocate capital. Yes. So again, uh, let's take a, a step back in 2008 and nine global financial crisis. As I mentioned, that's when we, we really learned our lessons, you know, to heart from there. Uh, and also because of uh, 2008 and 9, we didn't manage our uh, balance sheet liquidity well. We didn't have a centralized top-down uh, management and governance framework. Uh, so the, uh, in a way, the, the investment community or our partners, GPs, uh, at that time, we were uh, asking GPs basically don't call us on capital. Uh, don't show us any, uh, you know, uh, uh, great opportunities because we are struggling meeting with our basic financial obligations, let alone having uh, the money to deploy. Uh, so what, you know, a few things we did again in 2009, uh, 2019, uh, last year, we didn't know when the next crisis would come and how it would come. We, of course, we didn't know uh, COVID-19 was coming in 2019, but we knew at some point just as the nature of an economic cycle, 
at some point, the market downturn would come. So we wanted uh, to be prepared as much as we can. And one of the you know strategies, maybe an example, in addition to the balance sheet liquidity management framework, as well as the centralized governance around the use of leverage. Uh, other uh, example, I can give you an example as a, in terms of investment strategy. As you know, when the market downturn comes, uh, usually the distressed credit becomes a very attractive uh, uh, investment strategy, risk return, uh, uh, risk adjusted investment strategy. But the challenge with the distress is that you know the distress doesn't come very often. It comes once in a cycle, and I say the average cycle is every ten years. So it means that you have a good opportunity, you know, for on average every ten years, but you don't know when. And if you deploy your capital to distress the credit managers as an all-weather strategy, that become a much less attractive strategy. So we, in 2019, again, didn't know when the next crisis would come. We just knew at some point it would come. And when it comes, distress credit will become a very attractive strategy. But when the time comes, and then you start negotiating the mandate uh, with the general partners, that'll be too late, right? As you know, normally it takes about at least three to six months, at least three to six months to get a mandate, a contract in place. And during the crisis, you know, both the GPs and LPs are busy with so many other things. It's less likely they will focus on negotiating new mandates, uh, you know, uh, at that point. So we wanted to be prepared. So we proact proactively outreach, reach out to two uh, of the most reputable and capable uh, distress managers and start engaging with them to share with them what we are thinking and uh, why this could be a good strategy for LPs as well, for GPs, for CalPERS and for them as well. From their perspective, as you know, when the distress opportunity comes, sometimes they struggle, they see so much opportunities, but they don't have enough capital, right? So for them to have, so what we worked with these two uh, uh, distress manager, distress credit manager, is really a, what we call a trigger mandate. Means that this capital would only call contingent on some distress indicators. So we uh, pre-agreed with these two managers what are the distress conditions, and then once the market becomes distress enough, they could call us cap uh, call our capital, and we uh, negotiated and executed the two uh, meaningful mandates. Uh, with these two uh, uh, highly capable, uh, re highly respected distress credit manager, just in time. We signed the con executed contract in Q1 2020 this year. Uh, the second contract was executed literally as this uh, COVID-19 crisis was starting to unfold. So in terms of timing, uh, almost serendipitously, we got it right, right before the crisis hit. And when that happened, you know, they called our capital almost immediately. And because of our pre-planning of the balance sheet equity management, you know, we not only we could, uh, you know, uh, fulfill these two capital calls, uh, we also proactively go out to the GP community, ask them to show us the good deals, good opportunities uh, they see. It doesn't mean that we will do all of them, depending the need of our portfolio at that time, and also depending on our assessment, you know, of the opportunity set, as well as our the need of our, our portfolio construction at that point. 
but the fact that we were able to proactively outreach to GP is, is a 180 uh, change from 2008 and 9 global financial crisis. Remember at that time we were calling, we were proactively calling them, but asking them a, a, a totally different direction and say, don't call us, right? Don't call us on capital. But now we proactively outreach to them to say, show us what you, show us what you have, what you see. And that's really worked. So not only on the distressed, on the credit side, there were some co-investment opportunities in private equity, right? The GPs really showed us because not all the LPs are, LPs are equally prepared for capital costs. So uh, when some of the LPs cannot step up uh, uh, to the co-investment opportunities, GP really, the GPs really turn around to us. And we have been able to deploy capital in private equity uh, in, so make us with the co-investment. And all, as you know, the co-investment is very meaningful because it's the money on the ground almost immediately. You don't have to wait until the J-curve effect or for the investment period. So again, we are really benefiting from all the planning we did in, 2000, uh, in 2019. So the, uh, what we call the trigger mandate for the distressed credits, these two mandates are just some of the examples of the seeds we planted last year and now really started uh, germinating. So we're very pleased to see that. You can really see through those examples, Ben, that um, it's a much more empowering position to be in control of, of your balance sheet and, and be able to deploy capital when the opportunities are there. So that's really clear. What about now? What are you seeing in the markets today? And, and where are you looking? Yeah. So, so before I answer that question, Amanda, so kind of, you know, your very first question you asked me, you know, the 7% on $400 billion in today's uh, triple low environment is very tall order. I agree with you, it's very tall order. And then the second half of the question you asked me, is that possible? That's why I continue to believe that it's possible because I continue to believe that there are things CalPERS can continue to work on to improve, to increase our chance of success. And the example of all the preparation they did in 2019, and now we put them through live tests as we speak, continue to put them through live tests, and they're behaving by and large as we expected. That gave us more confidence that we believe that we continue to believe it is possible to increase the chance of our success. Um, so your question is really what I see now. So there are, uh, in a way, there are two things. Uh, or oh, when people ask me, you know, am I offensive or defensive now? So, Every morning I wake up, it's almost I have two sets of, of uh, mentality. One set of mentality is the defensive part, making sure that our portfolio, you know, uh, uh, stays safe. We can meet, again, we can meet all the margin calls, all, particularly, you know, uh, given the remote working, making sure that the, 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 the entire system just humming along, function very well, smoothly, and so far it has been the case. Uh, again, with a lot of uh, great thank you to each one of my team, mem uh, each of my uh, team members. Uh, so that's a defensive part, and also making sure that the existing positions, uh, you know, in our portfolio, you know, they are well taken care of. All the liquidity need, members' benefit are being paid out on time, uh, everything humming along in the smooth way. So that's the defensive part. The offensive part is continue to look for opportunities where we can better position ourselves. Uh, the opportunities may be short-lived, so that's what I call zoom in. Now is the time to zoom in. The pockets of uh, uh, opportunities 
making sure we can identify them, then find the right channels, either internally or externally with, with capable managers to execute, making sure that we continue to mind for the great opportunities as they present themselves, we can construct portfolio that way. So that's a zoom in part. They're also part of zoom out. You know, we're a long-term investor to earn 7% on $400 billion when the risk-free rate only seven, 70 pips. You know, we need to expose ourselves to risks. And particularly as a long-term investor, it's one of the few true structure advantages they have is to be a long-term investment, uh, to be a long-term investor, focus on the long-term. So that's why you zoom out. Zoom out means that you're still focusing on the risk premium you are trying to capture and the risk premium in the long run that you know, we still believe in that in the long run, equity risk premium should be positive. We also believe that in the long run, the e-liquidity premium should be positive in the long run, and as well as the term premium. So there's a few fundamental beliefs that we believe in, uh, and we will try to continue to expose our portfolio to the right kind of a long-term risk premium that can better align with our structure advantage, which is a long-term investment horizon, and our access to the better asset classes, which are the private equity and private debt asset classes. So that's kind of what we continue to see opportunities, stay focused on the long run to capture the risk premium, but don't lose sight of the short-term market volatility, the op and particularly the good investment opportunities that it may present themselves in the short run. So that's where you zoom in, but there are also times that part of the portfolio you need to zoom out so that you don't lose sight of your long-term goal. So in a way that I keep on saying that, you know, we have developed a plan, we have a plan, and keep calm and carry on, stick to the plan. That's great, Ben, thank you. Ben, you were recently part of our Fiduciary Investors Digital Symposium. Thank you very much for taking part in that. It actually turned out to be quite comical. We had a bit of a technical glitch and, and you couldn't hear me halfway through the interview, so you and... Ronald Voister from APG ended up interviewing each other. Thank you very much for keeping the show going. It was a pleasure. It, yeah, it, it's a challenge for all of us in terms of technology. So I'm glad it, uh, it turned out to be uh, okay. And it was really a lot of credit goes wrong. You know, I didn't get the time. He didn't get the airtime that he deserved. So you should interview him again to I, get his uh, wisdom and insight about the market. I absolutely will, Ben. Thank you very much. But um, we, you know, we brought about 400 asset owners from around the world to that discussion, and a key part of that on the program and and the questions that they were asking was about inflation. So, what's your view of inflation, and how do you factor that into decision making in your allocation of assets? Yeah. So actually, that is the. You can say you you can call that four hundred billion dollar question because we manage four hundred billion dollars. Uh, if, if we were spending a lot of time, you know, on this topic, you know, a lot of brain damage, quote quotes, right? Are we engaging very smart people, both internally as well as externally, uh, on this topic? And uh, you is a very distinct two group of thoughts. One is firmly believe that hyperinflation is coming. And the other group of thought is really deflation is coming, right? And I spent uh, a meaningful part of the last year, 2019, again, not knowing this crisis, but I was studying the Japan uh, experience, the Japanese, uh, Japanization. Um, so 
we don't have a clear view on this and we'll continue to study this. But the challenge, let's back off uh, a little bit. So I gave the Fed, uh, global central bankers, particular Fed, a lot of credit for, uh, 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 for what they did uh, during the recent crisis. They stepped in so massively, so rapidly to stabilize the financial market, right? And which has worked. It worked so well, actually, people kind of forget that, you know, we're still dealing with uh, a public health crisis. But the Fed, you know, came into this crisis, uh, did not, the Fed was not in a very good, a comfortable situation because the Fed has not been, had, had not been able to normalize the monetary policy, right? Uh, they, we went into this uh, crisis with a large balance sheet, and very low interest rate already. And then this crisis hit. So the Fed had no choice but in a way up the ante. The balance is getting even larger and the interest rate getting even lower. Uh, and now going forward from here, as I said on the uh, on your symposium recently, this is started out as a public health crisis and it, would, it has to end when there is a medical breakthrough. Either the virus goes away on its own, like SARS did you know, uh, 17 or so years ago, or we find an effective treatment or a, a, a vaccine that can be massive, uh, you know, can be available to the general mass, the general population. Uh, in the shortage of one of the three in the medical front, you know, either the uh, virus goes away on its own or a treatment or a vaccine, uh, the crisis won't be over. So what the Fed did very effective which is to buy time for the medical community to come up, come up with a solution. But if the solution doesn't come anytime soon, for the next round, it will be harder and harder for the Fed and the policymakers to continue to buy time. For any additional unit of time they need to buy, the additional, of the additional ammunition they have to spend will increase. So that is my concern. And at that point, you know, we need to talk about it truly inflation or deflation. But so far, I think the Fed policy is working, has bought enough time uh, for the, I want to say, I, I don't know exactly the time, but the medical community has some time to work, you know, uh, uh, as long as we can continue to stabilize the financial market and the real economy. But eventually, it has to be the medical community. It has to be a, a solution to the pandemic, uh, you know, to solve uh, all this challenge. So my, my answer, I don't have an answer, sorry to you, uh, Amanda. At least, uh, but one thing I can say, the inflation uh, premium, the currently in the uh, financial market, I don't think it has pressing enough uh, inflation premium uh, or the volatility, the uncertainty around inflation, either up or down. So that part I can say with some level of uh, confidence that I don't think the market have fully appreciated the uncertainty around inflation going forward. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much and, and please take care. Thank you, Amanda, and uh, uh, be safe and be well and speak to you soon. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.